Hello and welcome to the Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Mission Cigar and Social here in Spring Hill, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Dedman, and I am joined, as I am every week, by a man who got confused on how to celebrate Mother's Day. He bought a starter kit for vinegar, Mr. Shane Reeves. That would, that would be confusing. <laughs> And I'll, okay, I don't get it. You'll have to explain what a starter kit for vinegar is. So when, so commer- whether it's at home or whatever, or, or, or commercially, when you let wine go bad, it turns to vinegar, and it's a it's a um, it's an algae bacteria kind of th- I can't remember which it is, and essentially it sits there and it feeds itself. And the really good vinegar producers have what's called a mother. And it's a sample that they can take a little bit off of and put in their new vat. And it starts the vinegar production. And it's a closely, it's, you know, you've got, you know, the the mother stays under lock and key, just like the herbs and spices from. It's like the blend book. Yeah, exactly. To To bring it to cigar terms, it's like the blend book. Well, you know. Last week, we celebrated Mother's Day at my sister's house, and my sister is really, really into gardening. Now, I know it's hard to imagine anybody in my family getting almost obsessed with certain things. You know, I've been to your sister's house, and I've, I've seen the garden, and I know exactly... Well, this I time, bet it's even gotten bigger since I was out there. Well, this time of year, she has tons of little plants getting started. Right, little and seedlings. She, yeah, and she has them in her house. And one of the plants that she had, and she has it labeled on the little cups, and it was a, a coxculant or something like that. Uh-huh. And I just seen the first part and the S's and the C's on that. And I said, Wow. Her progress in the Venus flytrap division has been amazing <laughs> that she's invented one that'll do that. <laughs> that's, a con- that's a context joke, folks. <laughs> that'll, be a, uh, that'll be the next overnight millionaire, I'll tell you what. <laughs> and also, tonight, I'm smoking an H. Upman Bay J. Fernandez. You know, it's rare that I get jealous of the cigar that you're smoking on the show. That is one of my all-time favorites. I didn't even know it was in there. I'm smoking on a dirty palate. And I wanted to go in there and have, you know, you didn't want, I don't want to do nothing fancy when I'm on a dirty palate. Right. But I want it to be good. And this is kind of, you know, as we're coming to the end of the evening and heading up the evening and things like that, it's like, I want a dependable cigar that I know is going to be great. And so that, that limits next down the, the possibilities. And Altadis has been putting a big push in the market and we got these back in finally. Yeah, and just an amazing Ecuadorian Sumatra wrapper, Nicaraguan binder, Dominican Nicaraguan filler, but just an amazing stick. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I do I have smoked so many of those. I've I've smoked boxes worth of that cigar. I love it. I I I'm also on a dirty palate, and I went in doing the same thing. I wanted something bold and strong that was going to cut through that dirtiness. Something I knew that was going to deliver. But not not anything that I was going to have to worry about too much nuance with. So I went with the Norteño from Herrera Esteli. Always a good choice. You know, this is a cigar that I absolutely love, but I don't ever smoke it because when it first came out, it was so cost prohibitive. I don't think they've ever increased the price on this. It was twelve bucks. Yeah, it's it, they just that's what it's up. always been. <laughs> 
you know, I had a box of the Norteño Churchills. And when I was at doing my real estate classes and I passed my final real estate test at the classes, I went down to Bell Mead and bought a box of cigars. Well, he had a box of the Norteños in the Churchill sitting there. And I said, boy, that's a great cigar. And Jeff said, well, let me cut, let me, let's, yeah. let's make a deal. And all, they've been here a little while. Let's make a deal. So he made me a deal on that box. I got to smoke one of those. Really? My wife smoked the entire box. Oh, no. And I said, or were you aware that that's not a size that's easily found or a cigar? Or that it was bought under special circumstances? Right. She smoked every one of them. Uh. <laughs> and all this, one of the downfalls of getting your wife all flavored cigars is now she starts smoking your good stuff. But, you know, it's a Nicaraguan filler under uh, Honduran binder and a San Andreas Maduro wrapper. So it's it's a whole lot of flavor. That's that's blended just as perfectly as you would expect from Willie Herrera. Yeah, Herrera's it's, it was it it was blended in Willie Herrera's prime. Yeah, when he was blending the shade, when he was doing the Nortenos, when he was doing the Hoyas, when he was really and I'm not I'm, I'm he's by no means washed up. Right. But Drew Estate's market plan has not really been so much about new cigars lately. Yeah. It hasn't given him the same opportunity to really shine. Right. When that cigar come out, they were in the thick of it, really trying to compete with They were everybody. in a full growth phase. Right. And though that's kind of there's something to be said for getting a cigar from when a blender was in their prime. Oh, absolutely. He was, he was on top of his game right there. But speaking of repackaging cigars. La Polina ships updated Nicaraguan, Connecticut, and Oscuro lines. So, um, La Polina, this is from Half Wheel. La Polina is kind of the unsung hero of a lot of humidors. They really are, and I think, I think they get a little bit of a bad rap for being overpriced. Because so often you see the Black Label or the Goldie or some of the really high-end lines that are up in that 18 you know, $20 range that you forget that their main line, the Nicaragua, the Connecticut, they're, you know, 9 10 11 bucks each. And they are just phenomenal. Well, and what's interesting about these cigars is they've actually moved their production to an undisclosed Nicaraguan factory. So... That that's interesting because they've in, they've always previously been made down at the Titan de Bronze. Mm-hmm. So for them to move to that, and they and it's now been confirmed that they're actually being made. These new La Polina, the Connecticut, and the Scuro are going to be made in the Fabrica de Tobacco Hoya de Nicaragua factory. Oh, okay. So it's really interesting that they're doing that. Um, I'm looking forward to this cigar. The Oscuros, I really want to try. I'm sure we'll see them at the show. $9.50 each for the Toro. That's a great price point. Yeah, it really is. So I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how this works out. Uh, La Polina, much like Altadis, kind of making a move on the market. Well, they came in and talked to us a week or so ago. They want to do a poker night. They're trying to, to take advantage a little more of some of their stuff. Yeah. So it'll be, last year, we, we picked them up at the show, and I specifically brought Mark to the booth and said, yes, we need La Polina. Oh, yeah. And um, we got the Goldies in. The Goldies sold well, moved out of here quick for a $20 cigar. You know, they didn't move quick for a $10 cigar, but they, no, moved, yeah. they moved quick enough for a $20 cigar, yeah. for sure. 
So we've had a lot of good luck with them. They've not they've not set the world on fire here, but they've been consistent. Well, and the thing is with a $20 cigar, you don't need it to move like a $10, especially like the Goldie, since it's a, you know, gradual release throughout the year. You know, you can kind of you can kind of hold on till the next release date by the fact that they sell a little bit slower. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about McAuliffe. Yeah, we haven't talked about McAuliffe in a long time, and that's why this article really kind of hit me when I saw it. So McAuliffe ships the Leyenda Robusto uh, and Toro, which are two new sizes for the for the line. Um, it's an Ecuadorian Habana wrapper over Nicaraguan binder and filler from the Dominican Republic, Honduras, and Nicaragua. So it's kind of a what is it? It's all things to all people. There's a lot going into this brand. And the Leyenda is a great cigar. I really like it. But what really caught my attention is, you know, at one point, you and I were talking about, and I think this was about two years ago, we were doing the Stogie Awards. We talked about how McAuliffe was the brand to watch, man. They were the company on a move. They were doing stuff. And it feels like... In the last maybe year and a half, they've just fizzled. They're like a bottle rocket. Yeah, and I'm a little removed from this, largely due to the fact you can't give a McAuliffe away in this store. Right. Um, the There was a time when McAuliffe really was overexposed in this humidor. And a lot of guys remember that time and don't want to purchase McAuliffe. See, it, you know, you've said that before. And I'm really curious about that because I look at how busy this shop is and how many people are. I can't imagine enough of the client base was around back then. I wonder how much of that is actually the people in here smoking and how much of it is just kind of reputation through hearsay. I think we're about another year out from being able to trickle some McAuliffe back in, Yeah. especially if they make some good moves. But now you made a really good point about McAuliffe when we were doing show prep. Yeah, so I because I've you know my home my home shop is a is a McAuliffe lounge like we're the very big in McAuliffe and and do events and get a lot of new releases that way and you know I think the biggest issue for me with McAuliffe is the ambassador program they had the best idea I would say maybe second only to just Drew Estate just really putting a, a culture around their brand and they've kind of not done anything with it you know yes you get you know early access to some stuff but it doesn't really require anything in terms of like being an ambassador or whatever and I think you know the worst thing you can have for your brand is bad marketing I think the second worst thing you can have due to your brand is have brilliant marketing that you don't follow through on and I think that's what we're seeing with them. Yeah, I think that they kind of, you know, they came out, everybody bought them, had them in their store, and some stores they took off real well, and some stores they didn't. Yeah. But it seems like the stores they didn't, they were willing just to write them off. You know, and it also, one of the things that they do interesting is, you know, obviously they price protect like so many brands do, but they don't actually do any direct shipping. If you don't have a local brick and mortar and you want them mail ordered to your house, they actually send the order to a brick and mortar near you who does carry it. And they do all of the processing through the brick and mortar, which is a great idea. If you own the brick and mortar. It's great for the brick and mortars. Yeah. 
And, you know, but I wonder how much of, you know, if I look at what McAuliffe does differently than everybody else, that's the primary thing. And it makes me wonder if there's an availability issue for what people want that comes from that, or if, or if maybe you don't, the manufacturer not having control over the shipping timeline, because the worst thing that can happen is have your box of cigars sit on a mail truck for an extra day. How much can a, can a cigar rep work on a store where his cigars ain't selling? What are, what are a good way for reps that are listening? If you put your cigars in a store and they're just not moving, and you know they're good cigars, and you know, but people just aren't getting them in their hands, it's hard to do an event because you'll have a low turnout and people right. aren't buying boxes and stuff like that. The cutting light thing is hit or miss. Now, we're lucky here we got the poker game. Right. That, that makes a gigantic difference. But what can a rep do to kind of nurture a store that they're falling behind in the sales? Because right now, nine times out of ten, they just write that store off in all the reps. You know, we've had several people here whose cigars didn't sell, and instead of coming in here and doing some stuff, they just wrote us off. Well, it's... It, it's a chicken and the egg situation, right? Because if a if a rep doesn't support the shop, the shop's not going to support the rep. And so, you know, I won't say which brand it was in here, um, but had one of the best reps, in my opinion, in the in the business. But the cigars weren't moving, and it soured the relationship to the point that, well. You know, the, the shop didn't feel like the rep did right by them, but then once called on the carpet, the rep was, you know, kind of hurt at the way the process went. And then both of them soured the, the rep. So I think it's, it's tough because as a rep, yes, you can come in and you can talk to the people who sell your cigars and say, why aren't you recommending it? And not with any sort of, like, wagging of the finger or anything, but, like, honest and genuine curiosity, like, I'm seeing a cigar that is close to ours in both price point and profile that you guys have reordered three times since you ordered with me. What's up? What? Why are you recommending this one over that one? What can we do? You know, maybe it's maybe it's a matter of like maybe we just need to throw you a like a bo- an extra box for every five you you know or something. Just maybe it's a price point thing. I don't know. Well, the art of being a rep. And I was in here with somebody who is a really, really good rep. And we started buying direct from them. We had been buying through a distributor with them. We started buying direct through them. And he come in and looked at the humidor, and he and I were standing in there talking about it, and he said, this is not how I would have presented this cigar. Yeah. This is not how I would have presented my brand in this shop. And all. Because that's the, that's the downfall of buying through a distributor. One, the cigar, the store makes less money on the cigar. Right. But two, the rep don't get to come in here and say, okay, here's the lines you need to represent and here's, and do some training up of people. Yeah. So the, the art of being a rep is not only knowing your product, but knowing how to present your product in a way that people will identify with well and we've also seen it time and time again you've got to be likable you know if if people are bringing your cigars in because it's a it's a cigar brand name that people know and are asking for and it doesn't matter who's being the rep then that that's easy 
but how many cigar brands in that humidor do you guys carry because you like the person who reps the brand? Yeah, and cigar guys talk about yeah. cigars. Yeah. We talk about cigars a lot. We talk about it a lot on the podcast, but there's a lot of conversations in this store that are had about cigars. So if and and guys will come in and I'll say, "Hey, we got this new cigar in," and I'll tell them the story and they'll and the cigar will move or that it won't. We've had some very good brands that come in here that I, you know, that I told everybody, "Hey, this is great. This is the way it works. These are awesome." And they smoke one, and they say, well, it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. And also, we do have some good brands in here that don't sell. Yeah. So, you know, your iconic brands are always going to sell. Your Perdomos, your Aldi's, your Drew Estate, your iconic stuff is always going to sell. Your boutique guys have got to work a lot harder to figure out what the what the palate and the temper, temperance of the store is, the, the attitude of the store. Well, yeah, and also, you know, ring gauge and palette. You know, if you're if you're in a shop that sells mostly Connecticut's and you're repping LFD, it's probably not your shop. You know, if you're in a if you're repping CLE and you're in a shop that sells mostly Lanceros, probably not your shop. Well, and there's a lot of guys that are reps that come in and just say, well, these are the rules. These are our minimum orders. These are what you've got to carry if you want to carry our cigars. And those guys don't get very far. Right. And it may not be a fault of their own. It may be exactly what they have told them. Right. Is, hey, this is all, you know, this is how you've got to sell these cigars. And you kind of you kind of hurt yourself if you bind yourself up in that man. Well, how many times have we talked about the cigar industry as a relationship business? And that's no, never more prevalent than the relationship between the rep and the shop. And, yeah, if you're going to walk in with a hard sell and talking about we're not even going to be able to talk if you don't spend 10 grand with us, that's not how you start a relationship off on the right foot. No, you, you've got to build it up. You've got to work it. You've got to talk to it. You've got to visit more often. And unfortunately, the market being what it is, where there's so many little shops, a lot of reps get stretched way too thin and they have to say, okay, this shop is not selling enough of my cigars for me to go in there once every, you know, and we don't, a, a rep in a rep that has a cigar in this humidor, once a quarter. Yeah. That's all we're asking. Once a quarter, come in here in the shop, sit down and smoke one with us. Go in the humidor, see how we've got you presented, see how your cigars are laying out, see what's selling best, what's not, what needs to come in. Even, you know, there's a rep in here right now that we're clearancing all his stuff out because he said, well, yeah, these ain't selling. I'll trade them out for you for something else. And then never followed through. Yeah. Totally ghosted us. His brand is going away. Yeah. I mean, his brand is leaving because he ghosted for no other reason than he ghosted us. And that that's going to happen. So just to kind of bring it back, you know, as we as we put a pin on that part of the conversation, you know, we, I really hope McAuliffe comes back to being top of the mark. I, I really do like their stuff. That it's, you know, you've said it time and time again. They're good cigars. They're not great. And there's too much competition not to be great. I think they do have some great cigars. The Migdalia is one and I can't remember the other one. The A is excellent. The A is phenomenal, although it's up near nine bucks now. Right. And it's when it came out as a seven dollar cigar, it was great. At nine bucks, 
there's a lot of competition there for a short filler for a medium filler cigar. McAuliffe needs to do some collaborations. They do, and I think they need to consolidate. They need to get rid of the bold line, and they need to focus on their what I would call their core line stuff, make it more available more regularly, and just focus on getting in front of people again. See, I'm I'm right opposite. I like their bold line better than anything they do. I would re- I would rather see them keep the bold line and dump about half of the Pedro Sanchez stuff. Well, Sanchez I'd Gomez stuff. Get rid of the Sanchez go- the the Gomez stuff for sure. Um, I do like the bold line, but have you had one recently? I haven't had one in a long time. Go have a Matafina next time you see it. Not the cigar it used to be. It doesn't feel like it to me, and I don't know that they've changed the blend. I don't know what it, but the, for some reason. It's just not, it doesn't do anything for me like it did when I first had it. Well, and here's the thing. Look at this cigar I'm smoking right now. How many people came back to H. Upman because of this A.J. Fernandez? Oh, yeah. And now H. Upman is doing great with the Añejo and a couple of their other ones and pretty much anything they collaborated with A.J. on, but still. Yeah, so back to Rob Report. We did a Rob Report article last week, and this is a good one. I'm going to let you take the reins on this one. So the iconic bar from Cheers is heading to auction. And it'll, by the time this airs, the auction will probably be over. Um, at the time of writing, it's currently at a highest bid of $100,000. I'm guessing it'll probably get up close to a million. I don't think it'll get up that high just because of the difficulties in handling it. And one, it's made of Luan. Mm-hmm. Luan is not, it, it's made to be lightweight. It's not made to well, yeah. be super big and durable. Yeah. And that, the I think that there is, because it's not like you could take this in your house and set it up and have, you know, your bar set up here. It's not a, unless there's something about Luan, I don't know. Unless they're using a different type of Luan than I always use during construction. Um it's, I think, 100000 If it gets to $150,000, i will be surprised. All right. I, I think it'll go... I think I think a million's probably too high. Because the point... You're right, this, you're right. This is a set. It's not really a functional bar. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get up closer to maybe a quarter mil, 250 I think I'm thinking... Of high, I mean, because it was an iconic show. It ran for how many seasons? Oh, yeah. I think it's 11, 9 or 11 seasons. It was a bunch. Um so this is part of a larger auction from the collection of James Commissar. And he's got things from Gunsmoke, I Love Lucy, Star Trek, The Office, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. He's got all of these iconic things that are part of this auction. I'd really like to get find out exactly what the auction is. I know. Sadly, I don't see a link to the auction itself because uh, I would love to go and see you know, what everything is. But so it's got me thinking because I don't know. Did you like the show cheers? Did you ever watch it? Yeah, it's okay. I loved it until Kirstie Alley came on. And, um, and I even really enjoyed, you know, the spinoff of Frasier and I watched all of it, but uh, looking at all of the, the stuff that he has, it got me thinking, what's one piece of classic Americana that you would pay stupid money for? Okay. I'm going deep. And this is really obscure. I want Colt Seaver from the Fall Guys bathtub that sat outside his cabin that he <laughs> used as a hot tub. Okay. If you watch the Fall Guy, and you can watch Fall Guy on Tubi right now. All right. Or Freebie right now. 
And in the front, you'll see him sitting iconically, Lee Majors, sitting in that tub with a cigar in his mouth outside of his cabin that was way back in the hills. I would probably pay stupid money for that. All right. If, if money were no object, I'd probably pay stupid money for that. Because I, I would also, I'm a big Fall Guy fan. There's See, I thought you were going to say the van from the A-Team or... I would rather have the truck from the Fall Guy than the van from the A-Team. Okay. Because the truck from the Fall Guy was great. It was, just, it was that brown Chevy Silverado classic, 86. Um, had the big KC lights on it and all of the stuff. It it looked, it was a great piece of marketing, a great piece of set, because it looked exactly like you would think a stuntman would drive. Okay. So I, that, if I was going with a vehicle, but now I'm talking about a set piece, not a vehicle, we could do a whole other thing on iconic vehicles and film oh, that you would like. Oh, yeah, for sure. Is there anything worse than the guy driving the Scooby-Doo van? I think I've seen like 10 or 15 Scooby-Doo vans in my life. The worst part is it's never the right van. You know, they take a Chevy Astra van and they make it the Scooby-Doo vehicle or something. Like, it's never the, the right van. I, I think there's... I think if you're going to do... Well, it's the same as the people that get the, the modern... Dodge Chargers and paint them like the General Lee. Right. No. no, just because it's got the same name, it's not. It's not right unless it's a 1970 Dodge Charger. Just leave it alone. Well, you know, the if you if you want to talk about vehicles, actually, rather than the Fall Guy truck, I would want to own the Coyote from Hardcastle and McCormick. See, I, I'm not familiar with that. You'll, you'll have to pull it up sometimes. It was that was a great time in TV when you could just take a car and build a <laughs> build a TV show around it. Right. And Hardcastle was a judge, and McCormick was an ex-con, and they fought crime in this Coyote, and it was really, really a cool, cool car. That's there's you know the I feel like we don't have that in TV anymore. You know, even like. You know, obviously there was the A team and Kit and or, or Kit from Knight Rider, rather. That like it was it was a character in the show. But then you had like Magnum PI's um, Lamborghini. Lam- no Ferrari. Or was it Ferrari? Ferrari. Ferrari yeah. Um, you know, Miami Vice had a Ferrari Testarossa. You had um, what was that? Nash Bridges had the Stingray. Barracuda. Yeah. Okay. Had a Barracuda. Barracuda. You know, so, but it used to be, you don't see people driving. You don't see that anymore in TV shows. It's, it's not like you recognize somebody for that car. Right. And all. That is interesting. We'll have to ask Derek sometime how come that, that kind of went out of the, out of the blush. Yeah. Why that changed. I mean, Boss Hogg's iconic white car. What was that? It was a, uh, I think it was a convertible Cadillac, wasn't it? I think so. And all. He was always riding in the back. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm trying to think now. I, As far as set pieces go, I want the Swamp. I would absolutely love to own the Swamp. Oh, from MASH. From MASH, the tent. Oh, okay. Well, I, would, I would pay stupid money for that. With the steel. You have to have the steel. You know, I could make my own steel. Yeah, but I, I, w- I wouldn't buy it if I didn't have the steel, because otherwise it's just tents and a stove and a couple of cots. It, the door, though. The door is iconic. The door was pretty cool. Yeah. and But as, as far as a car goes, I'm trying to think. There weren't... You know, in the in the, the TV shows I grew up watching, there, there weren't a lot of... Like, that had already started to wane. Yeah, it's... it's um, it's interesting how that stuff changes and how it moves through. So one more article before we go to the break. 
Overlook Lounge at Wynn Las Vegas. So I will admit I got this article solely for myself. Well, you're headed there in a couple of weeks. Yeah, last time we were at the show, we all ended up smoking. There was only one bar in the Venetian where you could smoke cigars. So you're having a cigar convention in the Venetian. Can you imagine how crowded that bar was? Oh, I'm sure. Every night was very crowded. So I said, okay, I'm going to look kind of what's there where I go. And I think I'm going to go to the Overlook. So they remained a cigar lover's city in Las Vegas, and they quietly put together this Overlook. And it actually overlooks the gaming floor. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, you can see some really cool stuff from there. Very well anointed, very pretty. And I'm going to tell you, they're talking about um, the price of the cigars there. Uh, Romeo from uh, Romeo and Juliet for $23 up to $62 for a high-end Davidoff cigar. But if I'm somewhere like that, I expect to pay double for my cigar. Exactly. I'm not price shopping when I'm in Vegas doing that. I'm going to go ahead and pay a little extra, have an old-fashioned, which is probably going to cost me. I'm probably going to drop $100. Easy. When I walk into that lounge. Yeah, you're you're most likely, for a cigar you want to smoke, you're going to pay about 50 bucks, most likely, 40, 40 to 50 bucks, And then, yeah, your drink is going to be $25. You know, but the thing is, let's, let's take the cigar convention out of a trip to Vegas for a second. You know, most people who go to Vegas, you're going to see a show, but you're going to gamble. And... When you're sitting at the tables, if you're a drinking person, you're going to drink for free. So really paying $25, $30 for a craft cocktail, when you know, if you spread it over all the drinks you have over your vacation, you're paying, what, three bucks a drink? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so it's worth it. Yeah, and it's, you know, the tables don't allow you to smoke anymore in the Venetian at Vegas. You're not allowed to smoke at the tables anymore, which is a terrible decision. Is that just at the Venetian, or is that all of them? I don't know if it... I don't know, because I only seen it at the Venetian, and then after I did the show, I was so tired every night, I just went back to bed. I bet if you go down Fremont Street, I bet those still allow smoking. Yeah, I bet you can still have a cigar in old Vegas. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, my trip to Vegas in July is a work trip. Mm. I'm there... To try new cigars, to get to talk to reps, to talk to people, and things like that. So, I don't get to do as much of the leisure stuff. But I do think this year I'm probably going to go to a few more of the parties. Yeah, that'll be fun. I do think you ought to uh, maybe take an extra day and just because. Have you been to Vegas outside of? Oh yeah. Okay, so you've done. But I'm I'm not a huge gambler. As much as I enjoy a little gambling, I'm just not a huge, huge gambler. I know the odds are against me. Yeah, but going to see a Penn and Teller show sounds like it would be right up your alley. And I mean, I guess if you're if you know you're going back to Vegas every year, there's always next time. But yeah, like I'm going to New York in a couple of weeks, and it's it's one of those things of I've been to I've been to New York before, but I've not been to New York as an adult by myself. I'm going for a work trip, but I'm extending it for a night, mostly because that was just what the flights allowed, uh, because of when the conference ends and things like that. So I'm absolutely taking that. I'm going to go spend my entire per diem on one meal, and and then I'm going to go to the Comedy Cellar and watch where you know Greg Giraldo and Colin Quinn and all of those guys came up, because that's an absolute bucket list item. I'm all for turning a whip, work trip into a pseudo-vacation. Yeah, you kind of have to. Yeah. You, you know, you kind of have to because when you get a chance to get to these places and it's always, 
I have so much trouble when I plan vacations not having one day too many or one day too few. It's really tough because, you know, when we went to Puerto Rico at the beginning of the year, it was it was both one day too long and one day too few. Because if we'd have had another day, we could have taken some time off and gone into the rainforest. We didn't get oh, to do UK. that. You know, but because we had as much time as we did, we ended up just walking around Old Town a whole lot. And, you know, we didn't spend a whole lot of time just sitting on the beach or whatever. So like, we either could have cut it a day short because we saw Old Town enough, or we should have had another day. to. It's, it's a hard needle to thread. It is. It's tough when you're on a vacation because you don't want a vacation where every day is planned, especially if you're a cigar guy. Right. There is times, you know, when we go to Gatlinburg, we don't overfill our schedule. We'll go to some of the stuff. We'll go to the sites. This time we drove up to Clingman's Dome. We went over to Cherokee. But we also allotted plenty of time to sit on the porch and look at that beautiful view and just smoke a cigar together. Yeah. And all in hot tub time and things like that that you kind of want to have. Now, which of you is the planner? Or are you both? Me. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the planner as it pertains to this stuff and kind of the 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 actor see if if my wife had it her way she would be the cruise director at 9 a.m we're going to have breakfast at this place then we're going to leave here we're going to go do this we're going to spend exactly 64 and a half minutes at this place before moving on to the next thing i like to know what you know when we went to puerto rico the the fort I absolutely wanted to see the fort. I wanted right. to spend. I love doing stuff like that, which would bore you to death. But um, you know, the history, the living museum, kind of thing. And but I but I also like it to be like, okay, we definitely want to do thing X, Y, and Z. But other than that, let's just play it by ear. You know, but yeah, but so I I do like to have a play. But my wife is very much the one that's here's the spreadsheet for the vacation. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much the planner, but I don't plan too much in a day. I allot plenty of time because I'm on vacation. I want to take a nap. Right. I want to take it easy. You know, we're going to I'm going to Alaska this year, and there's going to be a day in Alaska that I just tell Mom, Dad, hey, go fishing without me. I'm just going to stay here at the cabin today and just soak it in and just relax and smoke a cigar and things like that. So lots of fun like that, but... Let's step away real quick. When we come back, we're going to talk about Colorado voters to decide whether or not to reduce tobacco tax. All right, we'll be back with that more after this. back to the cigar cast this is one of your hosts shane sitting across from trey deadman and i don't i had a bump choke in my head and i lost it i thought you just looked it up i, I just thought about it and I'll, oh yeah i remember now what i was going to talk to you about before we get back into the cigar stuff all right this week someone brought in a bottle of jefferson's ocean into the cigar lounge it's okay. a bourbon that they actually put into barrels and put on ocean liners mm-hmm and take it out to sea, and it ages like twice as quick because it's constantly moving. And I thought, we're getting closer to my seaweed tobacco every single day. Right. Thing, things like this are going to bring my seaweed tobacco to, to market before I, we know I it. I think it's, you know, because 
tobacco has nicotine in it. And we just kind of stopped there. Like, we found tobacco, and everyone was like, okay, like, can we ferment banana leaves? Can we, like, surely, this can't be the only leaf that has nicotine in it. Right. It's a natural occurring chemical. There has to be some in it, and there's got to there's gotta be a seaweed with nicotine in it out there. We've, we've got to find it. I, I, if it. When I win the lottery, that'll be my endeavor is, okay, I'm putting a million dollars up to find a seaweed with nicotine in it. <laughs> and we're going to go out there and start I'll searching. buy the private island, and we can start farming it. We'll start farming it right there off the coast. Sure, we'll lose a couple of growers to sharks. Right. But that's just the price that's of the doing That's the price of doing business. I mean, they got jaguars in Nicaragua. I'm sure they lose a grower every now and then to a jaguar. Uh, it, has to, it has to be part of the insurance policy. Got to be. Colorado voters to decide whether to reduce tobacco tax rate and refund tobacco companies. Now, this is an article... You almost never hear something like this coming out of the well, legislation. This is, it's funny because ever since, you know, Colorado passed recreational marijuana the same time that Oregon did, or no, Washington did, but they were the first to actually get it live and make it work. And yeah, sure enough, the first year they had, they had a surplus and they just gave that money back to you know, the people that paid it in. And I think that's absolutely the right thing to do in that scenario. Just like I think this is, you know what? You guys paid the tax. You, you gave us too much. You get to decide what we do with it, which yeah. is how I, it's kind of like you talk about, you know, before you raise taxes, make a, you know, have ma- a referendum, have a referendum and make me, make me buy in. Right. I feel like it's the same way of, let let the people vote on the budget. Like like before, you're going to tell me. Don't tell me how you're going to spend my money. Let me have a voice. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that, and the, and legislatively, I think we will see more of that because the availability of information is so much greater now than it has ever been. Unfortunately, the availability of misinformation is great too. Right. But. Everybody, I think, is kind of honing out their meter for what just doesn't make sense. Right. I think we're getting a better educated voter base. So the upcoming vote is on November 7th, and they've got a 23.65 million excessive tobacco taxes. So there are basically two, two possibilities on the vote. A vote in favor of the ballot will will tell say that the money set aside for the potential refund related to prop ee which is this progressively increasing tobacco tax will instead be transferred to the preschool programs cash fund and the general fund and the new tax on nicotine products and the increased taxes on cigarettes and tobacco products will stay at the rates required by by prop e so basically so the way way it is now prior to this recent Proposition EE, um, 40% of the wholesale price was the tax. Beginning January 1st of 21, it went up to 50%. January 1st, 24, it goes up to 56%. And beginning January 1st, 2027, it goes up to 62. So what they're saying is a vote in favor means that those rate increases will stay on the books. But if you vote against it, Colorado will refund that $23.65 million to distributors and wholesalers in a reasonable manner determined by the Department of Revenue. So I'm assuming that means requisite to what you paid in. That means one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. 
and then it'll reduce by 11.53% the tax rates of the taxes on cigarettes, tobacco products, and nicotine created. But da, 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 da. So essentially, it'll change the scheduling because they know that it's too aggressive. Well, even if you reduce it by 11.35%, this is still a ridiculous tax rate. You know, it, yeah. here in Tennessee, our tobacco tax is 6%. Right. Just to kind of quantify this. So they're talking about... 62% in 27. Even if you reduce that by 11.53%, you're still over a 50% tax. Here's my problem with with the way they have worded this this ballot measure, right? So basically if you if you vote in favor, we're going to, you know, we're going to give the the refund to the preschool program. That's great. And I guarantee you that's what's going to end up happening. Um, and they'll just continue raising pr- prices, just uh, and then there will be additional refunds and continue to be. If they vote against the ballot measure, they will refund this to distributors and wholesalers. So basically, they're saying we're either going to give it to the kids or we're going to give it back to the tobacco companies. Right. Well, the tobacco companies didn't pay it. Right. Well, they did, but they didn't. It was the people buying the tobacco products through increased prices and other things that paid that tobacco tax. So call it what it is, because no company's just going to absorb a tax hike and not pass that on to the consumers. Right. They can't stay in business. Right. So, you know, obviously giving this money back to the distributors and wholesalers will help with that, although I guarantee you they don't lower prices. But let's, let's call it what it is. You give the refund back to the people who paid into it. Like, present receipts. Hey, say going forward, if you can show receipts for your tobacco purchases, you file those with your state tax return and we'll refund, you know, whatever percentage of taxes that you paid on those purchases. Let's do that. Or I would be fine. Give away the twenty three point six five million, but drop the tobacco tobacco tax by eleven point five three percent. Right. I'd be fine with a combination of these two, but of course they haven't worded it that way where yeah. you could actually do that. But the the important thing in this article, I think, is that it is establishing that the legalized marijuana is having an impact on the tax revenue of Colorado. Oh, that yeah. It is having a positive impact in that. You know, um, And I love that they're leading the way for the other states who are eventually going to see this same kind of, you know... Colorado often also benefits from the fact that they're a beautiful state with lots to do, and they get a lot of tourism. And so they're probably making out a lot better on recreational marijuana than other states because people who otherwise enjoyed the idea of going on vacation to Colorado, now they're going to go so that they can get weed while they're there, and they're going to. So it it kind of feeds itself. Whereas you know, if Rhode Island passes recreational marijuana, who's going to Rhode Island just to get high? I'm kind of tore on recreational marijuana. I probably would not vote for it just because I don't want it around. I don't want to smell it. I don't want the stink of it around. I don't want the the culture around it is not a culture that I enjoy. So much about it I don't enjoy. I would probably never vote for legalized pot in Tennessee. You know, I will. I will vote for it if we ever get the opportunity. I'll never try it. I'll never partake. But I think so much of that culture that you described comes from the fact that it's an underground uh, culture. And I think if you move it into the limelight, some of that goes away. At, at least as much as, you know, there's cigar culture stuff. And it, it's a very different type of culture. But I'm sure there are people that don't, you know, 
look at this town, for example. There are two shops. There's this shop that really fits with sort of our culture of the cigar smoker. And there's the one down the road that is a much closer to the weed culture. But it supports both. So I think... I, I think it just makes sense to legalize it. I, I don't want it around. I don't like the smell of it either, but there are plenty of people who don't like the smell of cigars, and I don't like the idea of them being able to vote me not being able to smoke them. Very true. So moving forward to Rob Report. Um, we've had a lot of Rob Report lately. They've been doing a good job. The 10 best pocket knives from multi-tools to slip joints. Yeah, so I've, I saw this article last night when I was doing some show prep, and it made me think of you, obviously, because you are a, a an everyday, if you're wearing pants, you've got a pocket knife, and probably sometimes you've got a pocket knife even when you don't have pants on. Absolutely. So the first question I have for you is, what's the difference, What what's a slip joint? I don't know. Okay. Because I'm, I'm looking at some of the ones they're describing as slip joints. I mean, I understand a, a multi-tool. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory, like the Swiss Army knife, for example. But then they talk about the what looks just like a normal pocket knife to me. And they're calling it a slip joint. I've never heard that term before. but It, it must refer to the blade locking or not, is what I would assume. Could be. So I'm just going to run down this list real quick. Because that's not really what I wanted to talk about. But, you know, so best overall is the Victorinox Handyman Lock Blade Pocket Knife. That's that's your Swiss Army knife. Right. That's been the standard for a long time. A lot of people's first knife was that knife. Yeah. The next one is a James Brand Elko Pocket Knife. That's not one I'm familiar with. I wasn't sure if it was you. It's, uh, oh, they don't have the price. Oh, $65. It looks, it's a... It's only 4.3 inches long, so it's a small keychain pocket knife, which I think has a place. Well, yes and no. It has a place if you're using it to open an envelope or you're using it just for for your more urban guys. It's not an outdoorsman's pocket knife. No, but I would I would venture to guess most people who use a pocket knife do it to open packages on Christmas morning or, you know, open Amazon packages and stuff like that. Um, the next one on the list, this has got their vote for best EDC, um, the Benchmade 940. This thing is beautiful. Benchmades are beautiful, but man, I just can't use, I can't swallow the pricing on these. Two, $207. Yeah, I'm just not going to swallow the pricing on a knife that expensive. See, that surprises me. It seems like the kind of thing that you would... Because you, and granted, you have a pretty vast collection at this point, so you don't really need to spend money on a pocket knife at this point, but that seems like the kind of one, the kind of thing that you would recognize. I mean, you own a $400 cigar cutter, <laughs> so a $200 pocket knife doesn't seem like a bridge too far. Well, so the thing about pocket knives is they are prone to be broke and lost. Mm-hmm. So I hate to put that much money into something that could be broke or lost. Gotcha. You know? Um, and we can go through the list, but I really would, you know, so when you're looking for a pocket knife, let's, let's cut to the chase. What are we looking for? So I, before we do that, I do want to hit the next one on the list. I was just going down until I got to this because this is the one that I own. This is the Oppenel Number 8 Beechwood. It is a French-made pocket knife. It has a collar that locks the blade in place as opposed to having like a lever or anything like that. $19. Perfect. Holds. The only problem is it's a round wood handle, so it takes up some room in your pocket. Right. 
holds an edge great. It's I, it's what I whittle and carve with when I go camping. Best pocket knife, in my opinion, or at least way up there. Well, and you don't have to pay a lot for a good knife. You know, if you want a good fixed blade knife, the Marakinoffs are out of this world. And all the Moras, if you watch any of the bushcraft shows, everybody's got a Mora. But, so, is a fixed blade... See, when I think of fixed blade, I don't think of that in the same breath as a pocket knife. No, but I'm more to illustrate that you don't have to pay a lot gotcha. for a really good knife. Fair point. Um, it's all about the steel. You know, high carbon steel is going to be... You can sharpen a high carbon steel blade to a lot finer edge. But you have a lot less durability of both the edge and the blade itself. So what's going to give you the best durability? Stainless? Stainless. Yeah. Good 440 stainless. Um, the stainless steel, German, the German um, bowler steels are out of this world, but you're going to put some money on it. Um, so for the economical knife, the good 440 stainless, once you get it sharp. It'll and, stay there. And if you keep it, you got to maintain it. Don't wait till your knife's still to sharpen it. Right. Keep your knife that's sharp. That's the mistake I always make. That's, that's the mistake most people make pocket knife is they wait till it's dull to try to sharpen it. Just have it part of your regular, you know, monthly ma- monthly maintenance that you just take a few minutes and yeah. hit your pocket knife. Every, every 20 times you use it or so, or so just, yeah, just kind, of, kind of like with a, like cleaning a gun. When you take it out, you use it, you clean it. Yeah, just kind of make it part of maintenancing and having that. Put a little lube on the hinges, things like that. So what I look for in a pocket knife. I must be able to open it one-handed. Yeah. I want a frame lock. Do you like a like a spring assist or nope? Don't care for a spring assist because you can a good one-hand knife that's been lubricated properly. You open it, flip your wrist, and it's out there. Right. So you don't really have to have that spring assist in any way or fashion. And it's just I, I can one pull, more thing to break. Right. I can pull my buck out, flip my wrist, it's open, it's ready to go. Gotcha. And all, and I've carried a buck knife because my grandfather carried a buck knife. I think case knives are overrated. Okay. You know, everybody talks about the case knife, but I think they're just kind of overrated. The buck has always been the superior knife to me. So. Having Now, my buck knife that I carry does have a screwdriver on it. It has a pair of scissors on it. It's about the size of a loaf of bread. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and all you have to tighten your belt down just a little bit more right. when you wear it. But it does everything. Mine's even got a pair of wire pliers in it because I use it fishing to take fish hooks out and right. do things like that. Um, if you're not going to have a Leatherman-type multi-tool, though, be sure you get one with multiple blades. Yeah, Get one with at least two blades. If you're just going to have one knife. Right. If you're just going to have one knife in your pocket, be sure you go ahead and get one with two blades because inevitably um, you can even kind of segregate the blades out because paper is really hard on knives. Right. Cardboard is really hard on knives. And you can kind of separate the blades out so that you don't put too much wear because pocket knives are designed for the steel in the spine to be flexible and soft and the steel on the edge to be hard eventually you will sharpen through the hard steel into that softer steel and it'll quit holding an edge. Gotcha. So having multiple blades lengthens the amount of time. And if you have, you know, if you say, okay, this is the blade that's going to do all the work and this is the blade I'm going to use when I'm doing some fine tooling or something like that, have a multi-blade knife. That's one of my complaints about Benchmade, why I don't carry Benchmade, is most of their knives are single-blade knives. See, I've always been a single-blade single guy, but I... 
I have I have knives like my Oppenel. I use that on wood only and usually for decorative and for fun stuff. I've got a uh, a Drew Estate knife I got in a swag pack that is my it stays on my tool bench in the garage. I use it for breaking down boxes. I use it as a screwdriver if it's closer than an actual screw. You know, stuff like that. And so I just use different knives for different purposes. Yeah, my pocket knife, you know, if I'm in somebody's house and their door is not catching properly, I can take my pocket knife and fix that. Right. If I'm at my office and my deadbolt doesn't, I had this happen last week. I won't get into doors, in <laughs> but the door they had installed, the incorrect door they had installed, the deadbolt wasn't working, and I was able to take my pocket knife and hone that out, but I took it home and sharpened it after that. Right. That was not a deal that I would normally use my pocket knife for, or I would have a multi-blade knife. I could do that. So you mentioned frame lock earlier. Now, for the uninitiated, that's when a piece of the frame slides over when the blade is open in front of the opening that you fold the blade back into, right? Right. The The beauty of frame lock is you you can still close it with one hand. Right. Um, the, the spine lock knives, you kind of almost have to have two hands because you got to push the blade with one hand and push the spine with another to close it. Because otherwise, you're just going to close it on your thumb. Right. So I always end up using a frame lock knife because it's so much more... So much safer and easier to manipulate, again, with one hand. And it's one less thing to go wrong. You know, the the steel in the frame is tempered to that location so that it has memory and it always goes back, as opposed to the spine lock, which requires a, a spring and a hinge, which can fail. Right. More maintenance. Right. One thing I will say is no a, a solid, smooth blade knives only. I don't have a place in my life for a serrate or a half serrate blade knife. No, absolutely not. Because they're, they're hard to sharpen well. They're hard to keep sharpened well. They make a, a much more jagged cut. And they, you know, when you're talking a pocket knife, you're talking about a three-inch blade. So if you're giving up an inch to an inch and a half to serration, it reduces the effectiveness of what you can use that blade for. Absolutely. Stay with a smooth blade knife. Um, serrated, you know, I don't even like serrated steak knives. I don't either. Because I feel like I maul the meat. I prefer a nice cut when I'm doing a steak as opposed to an, to a serrated blade that kind of grips and tears the meat. I'll have to show you the steak knives we have. We have Logwheel steak knives at my house. They were a wedding present. They're the only steak knives I will ever own. They're kind of a hybrid. but So it's got serrations at certain points along the blade and it's smooth in between right but it's it's not serrated in the traditional sense it's more like a hacksaw blade where you've got just these really slight they're phenomenal okay i'll have to take a look at that because that's but you know it's funny because the pocket knife was always a rite of passage for me yeah. in my life and i think this is something that's kind of been lost in our culture when you get your first pocket knife and you realize the extra responsibility that comes with that but having a pocket knife has always been, um, it's, it's just been a rite of passage. And that's why I still carry one to this day and use it all the time. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in here in the shop and somebody's needed my knife. Can you buy a $10 truck stop special knife and make a good knife out of it? No, the steel will never be there. The steel will never be there to hold the edge. It'll warp on you. You'll never do well with it. Now, 
you don't have to spend two hundred dollars. You know, the, that was going to be my next question. If you're if you're buying your first pocket knife, or if you're if you've if you're like me and you buy cheap and then replace with nice, and you've realized you're carrying it every day for a couple of months, it's time to buy a proper knife. Spend forty fifty bucks. Thirty to fifty bucks will do it every time. Yeah. Thirty to fifty dollars. I carry the Buck Extract, which they don't make anymore. I have to buy mine off eBay, so I pay a little bit more for them. But I've been carrying the one I have now for five years, and I'll probably get another five years out of it. Yeah. So there's, you know, there is a, a lifespan to that. But thirty to fifty bucks. That way, if you lose it or something happens, you're not, you know, you're not out. Do you worry about warranty, or do you just assume you're going to lose it before you ever have to worry about that? Yeah, like I assume I'm going to lose it long before I'll ever, before I'll ever wear it out. And I have a couple that I've wore out and I put in my collection, things like that. You know, my granddaddy, he always carried the Buck Three Blade Stockman which is an excellent knife. And actually, when my grandfather passed away, I put one in his pocket there at the funeral because I wanted him to have a knife with him where yeah. he ended up. Um, just a sentimental thing. Oh, my, yeah, of course. My uncle was next to me, and he started crying because he said, I, I, he said I, I'm glad you brought one because I didn't <laughs> and all. But, um, you know, the three-blade Stockman was always my knife of choice because it had three blades of varying length. It had the long blade and the two shorter blades that you could use for different things. The problem, the reason I got away from it was it was not a one-hand opener. Gotcha. So, but you can buy a good buck knife, and Buck stands behind their product. I've never had a problem with buck knife. Yeah, you've told me some their. stories in the past, which we don't have time for here, but about them sending full-on replacement for a small issue or, or other stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. So, let's talk about Gallia Barris. Yeah, so I saw this, and you know the article. It, I don't really care about the, the article was from Cigar Journal, just talking about their limited edition Guy Bears. But it got me thinking. I remember about ten years ago, maybe even less. Guy Bears were everywhere. Every shop was doing custom orders for their members. You know, every manufacturer that was part of their swag pack. They didn't do polos or t-shirts anymore. They were doing Guy Barris. Like it was everywhere. The two pocket, the four pocket, whatever. They're gone. Yeah, they've kind of. I think pricing has just priced them out of the market. I think the you know because it is more more expensive to get a Guy Barra. And all the place they mention on here is running like 190 bucks a guy a bear. Yeah, but you've, you've always been able to spend that much on one and always been able to get them for cheaper than that. Although they were never terribly cheap. I think about 50, 60 is kind of your, your entry level and where you're going to find. Part of me wonders, you know, we've had some folks in here in other shops that the, the Columbia PFG shirt was their de facto uniform. Right. Which is essentially a modern-day Gaiabera. It's got multiple pockets. It's lightweight. It's breathable. You know, you can roll the sleeves up or, or wear them down. Is it because... Now, I know culture has been getting more and more casual for, you know, over a generation. Did we finally just go past that tipping point where casual wear is more comfortable, cheaper that it just replaced the guy as having a place in your closet? I think so, because, you know, we got two kinds of reps that come in here. They're either dressed to the hilt or they're just business casual. Yeah. And, and some in T-shirt and shorts. But. but I can't tell you the last rep I seen walk in here in a guy And I, th- I think that's it. I think it's just a, it's a kind of a relic of a bygone era. But if you want to look more retro, it's a great, great choice for a shirt. 
I'm ready for the bowling shirt to come back. You know, it was hot in the 90s. A lot of 90s fashion trends are coming back. I miss the bowling shirt. I think two and a half men kind of ruined the bowling shirt. That's yeah, probably a good point. Because that was what he wore all the time. What Charlie always wore was the, the, yeah. the bowling shirt. I think that kind of ruined that. I think everybody, nobody wants to look like Charlie Harper. Well, that... I mean, that's a very valid point. And also, it was popular in the ska set in the 90s, too. No one wants to look like them anymore, either. Yeah, I think that that, that kind of, that particular cigar fashion trend has moved forward. It's kind of like smoking jackets. You you rarely see a smoking jacket, and if you do, it's usually not on a dude that you want to be associated with. Well, it's funny, too, because that is something, that's a conversation that I do still hear in, in shops of like, oh, we should get smoking jackets. Oh, we should get, but no one ever does it. But it's uh, last week we talked about the the Paris Texas um, group, right? And you know, the, the, in the picture, they're all wearing their smoking jackets, and like, there's definitely a time and a place, and I like the idea of it, but it's part of a, an overall look, and I feel like that's a Guy Barra thing. Like, you can't wear a Guy Barra and not have linen pants, right? You know, it, it's got to be. You don't want to be seen wearing jeans or especially skinny jeans, and. So I wonder with, you know, with the smoking jacket, if you're just going to put it on with jeans and a t-shirt, like you're Ellen DeGeneres, that doesn't really work. Right. So, you, yeah, Dennis Miller always yeah. wore the jacket and the blue jeans. And, yeah, I think it's funny how so many of these things culturally come in and out. But I'd be okay with this. I'd, I'd love to walk into a cigar shop and see everybody working there wearing a nice Gallibera. Yeah, I think that you should pitch that here. I'd feel, I'd feel like I was in a classy place. You yeah. Know, here everybody wears the... The mission T-shirt, yeah, or the polo. Yeah. The guy working tonight has a polo on. Yeah, and the, just kind of, uh, it's okay. But I, I really, I thought I'd like to see the guy a bear come back. You, yeah, I think you need to pitch that to Willie over there. So tell me about your cigar. This is great. Uh, for a dirty, it took a minute to get over my. Pa- I also opened one of my near beers over here, so that also sort of tainted my palate for it. But the, I mean, the Norteño is a six all day long. Yeah, I mean, the Fernandez is the rare six-and-a-half workhorse. It, it's, a, it's a seven for me. I abs- That cigar is perfect. Just the, the wrapper on it is that rich, oily brown hue. It's not too toothy, but it doesn't look like it's been belt sanded within an inch of its life. Right. The blend is excellent. It stays consistent through the whole cigar, stays alive in your mouth. I mean, it's a six-and-a-half for me all day long. Um, so how do they get a hold of us, Trey? Uh, you can reach us on facebook.com slash the cigarcast, Instagram and Twitter at the cigarcast, email info at the cigarcast.com, and I'm proud of you. You've had a cigar smoking world championship article queued up for two weeks now, and we got through both shows without you getting there. I'm loading it up. I'm backloading it. We'll have a cigar smoking world championship show here <laughs> with special guest host someone else. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. Mm-hmm.